After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with J.J. Cooper. I'm John Manuel. Sorry for the delay. We, we just get busy. We actually like do other stuff and write stuff and go to games and uh, sometimes yeah, forget the podcast. podcast. Last week too, so. I think it was Smith. yeah that's right but i think that was yeah but we didn't we, well we meant to talk around dominic smith and cooper johnson and got sidetracked but there's just been too much going on the last couple of weeks for us to ignore oh, it, it any longer and uh lots of news in the world of baseball and two news items today that definitely made us focus on the podcast we're going to talk a lot about organizations comings goings where they're headed which ones are headed in the right and wrong directions today on the baseball america podcast and two news items that help us kick off the podcast, JJ. So we're going to talk a lot of Mariners. We're going to talk a lot of Cardinals today. Two organizations certainly perceived differently in the industry and with good reason. Mariners haven't been to the playoffs since 2001. And the Cardinals, only they haven't missed the postseason since 2001. I know they have, but it just feels it's that way. It's rare. It's rare. And JJ, in 2001... Uh, the Mariners won 116 games. One of the great seasons that of we'll all ever time, see. and not just that, they did it without Griffey, without Randy Johnson, without A. Rod. All guys, three, two, one Hall of Famer already, one who will be, and one who had a Hall of Fame career. But A. Rod, whether he gets in or not, who knows? But after jettisoning all three of those players, two of them in trades, one a very, very good trade, one a good trade, and then. One for nothing in A-Rod. After that, they go to the to the postseason. So, um, But since then, no playoff appearances. Only two winning seasons under Jack Zarensic, J.J. Jack was our executive of the year in 2007, I believe it was. Maybe it was 2007, 2008, when the Brewers broke through. Did a great job as scouting director in Milwaukee. And had a, not unique, but increasingly rare background now, J.J., as a general manager whose background was in scouting, he'd been a farm director, but he'd been a scouting director, but an area guy. Pure evaluator. He was an evaluator. He was a talent evaluator, made a general manager. And that put him kind of out of step in today's game. And I don't know if that's the reason that he didn't succeed as a general manager. Do you think that's the main... Can an evaluator, can a general manager in 2015 Major League Baseball become a general manager and succeed with their value when their background is almost pure evaluation and not really tied in. Even though Jack had some claim to being an analytics or being open to analytics, it turned out that he really wasn't very open to it. And can you do it the old school way and succeed in baseball in this day and age? I think you can. I think you're going to see though that, I mean, what we see is, is that there are fewer of those guys who get the opportunity to prove that they can. 
And that's a good way to put it. Uh, and the, the reality is, is that you look at Seattle, and this is one of those firings that it's really hard to argue. I, he got plenty of time to try to prove that he was, you know, going to turn it around. He had chances. And at some point, you say, okay, you know what? Look, the reality is, is that uh, seven years. It's a can, long time. You can say that there have been guys who had not turned it around at year seven who <laughs> then Moore. did, Dayton Moore. <laughs> but the difference being, though, that if you looked at the Royals at year seven, the Royals at year seven, you clearly said, okay, yes, it's not there yet. If this doesn't work out with Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakis and Salvador Perez and all these guys, then, yeah, you're done here. But we're going to give you the time to see if this works out. It's worked out pretty well. They got the best record in the AL. They went to the World Series last year. They're certainly all in for this year. Their their farm system, I wouldn't say, is in shambles, but it's, it's a certainly bottom third farm system. it's a bottom third farm system right now what they have in Kansas City because they are all in for right now. But the difference between that and Seattle is is that you look at Seattle right now, and I can't tell you if they're more equipped to win soon, or if they're more equipped to try to do a complete rebuild. I don't think they can do a complete rebuild because you can't take this team and rebuild it. You have a lot of money tied up in three guys. If you wanted to turn around tomorrow and trade Nelson Cruz, I think that you could get a good bit for Nelson Cruz. Probably not as much as you probably should be able to right. for a guy having as incredible a season as he's having. A 180 but, plus. But the reason you could get something for Nelson Cruz is, is he's under contract for a few more years at a relatively reasonable amount. If you turn around and said, Robinson Cano, I don't think Robinson Cano's done by any stretch of imagination. But Robinson Cano, he's yours if you're he's Seattle. Hard. He's a lot harder to trade. He's a lot harder to trade, there's no doubt. You, you have $24 million per year through 2020 at least. You, you, beyond. I believe yeah, it's no, I 23. Think it's beyond. I think yeah. it's 2023. I mean, I don't think he's as untradeable as, say, Joey Votto, but he's close. But he's close. Who is, Joe, who is the most untradeable man in baseball? Votto, Pujols? I'd say Pujols because here's the thing. You are still, if you got Votto right now, you are getting Votto at his, still, I mean, he's having a monster year this year. Yes. So you still are doing the equation of we're going to really, you know, we're, this is really going to hurt in the morning, but right now, I, you got to give me another drink. I mean, it's something where you get the, you're, you're thinking that you're going to get a benefit now and it's going to be the pay, the pain will be for the next GM down the road. Pujols has been pretty good this year. No, he has, but he's still... Closer to the end than Votto, and the, and the deal still has a long, long, long way to go. Yeah, he still has through 2021, which is really hard to believe. $30 million in 2021 for Pujols. What I'm saying, though, with this, though, is this, if you look at the Mariners, not that any of these players, you could see if Cano is Robinson Cano next year, Robinson Cano, Felix Hernandez, Nelson Cruz, those are three very good players. That's a core. That should That's have a been core. a core to build a winning team around this year, and they were predicted by a lot of people to be a winning team this year. Hasn't happened. Right. The problem being, though, is, is, okay, where do you go from there? That is at least half your payroll, probably, Yeah. on those three guys. And then you say, okay, so where do you go from there? And that's where the problem lies, is, is that they don't have Taiwan Walker as a nice, you know, he had solid, he's looking like the guy you hoped he would be. Yeah, there's certainly bumps in the road for him, but between him, Elias, Paxton, you do have... Some younger pieces to go with Iwakuma. Can Paxton be healthy? That's really the question. That's right. Well, that's why you need right. depth. 
their farm system has never really been about depth changing. That's just not something they've built uh, over the years there. One of the bigger issues, I mean, like the Cano contract, I actually thought, like, last year, they got more than their money's worth out of mm-hmm. Robbie Cano. And this unfortunately didn't help them that much because it was, they got, they they got close. They got place. close. And, yeah. it, and, and unfortunately for them, you know, made them think they were probably closer than they really were. You know, that's that's probably... And but, but even then, the, the move that they made out of that was Nelson a move Cruz. that you can't say has been anything but outstanding. Two of the biggest issues in Jack's tenure there have been when they've drafted really high, they've whiffed. And Dustin Ackley and Danny Holson, two players we saw a lot of here in the triangle area, both ACC guys. Dustin Ackley, I think, is the only college player I ever went up to at the end of his career and thanked him for his career because he was so much fun to watch for three years in North Carolina. He just, they whiffed on that. Uh, the second and, I don't, and the funny thing is that is I can't tell you where they whiffed there. Was, was that on the scouting? Was that on the player development? Was that on both? I don't know. I don't know, J.J., I, I, I that one baffled me. Danny Holson, Danny Holson, exactly. You, Danny Holson. That I would say that's a whiff on the scouting, in right. that the concerns of what ended up happening with him. I mean, I remember we were sitting in the you know in our radio studio that we did the MLB Network show we used to do. Yeah. You had gone to see Danny Holson. You come in and you go, he's the most crossfire top pitching prospect. Like this is Kyle Sleep, but take it up a notch. That's it. I mean. I mean, I, I, I knew all about him. I knew he was good. I'd seen him before. I did not remember him being as crossfire as he was late in his junior season. And all I know is the 2009 draft was a tough draft, but Dustin Ackley was a career 420 hitter, the college level, even with the old bats, who ran and that year hit 22 home runs after not hitting home runs his first right. two seasons. He was a slam dunk consensus guy, and even though he didn't work out, Kyle Seeger, who they drafted in the third round that year, 82nd overall, has given you production right, very you've almost close. Almost equaled what you hoped to get out of out That's of your right. number one pick. So that didn't help him, but it didn't ruin him. But Danny Holson, they need that guy. And the 2011 draft, JJ, was an epic pitching draft. Garrett Cole. I mean, Trevor Bauer was our College Player of the Year that year. Uh, Archie Bradley and Dale, Dylan Bundy went that year. Oh, yeah, and Jose way, Fernandez went 15th in that draft. And I know there's more. Robert Stevenson. Robert Stevenson, Taylor Guerrero is a great high school draft. I mean, Guerrero's coming slowly, but he's still coming around. Um, that was a great pitching draft. And the Mariners picked second in that draft. And that was the last draft where you could spend whatever you wanted. There were no restrictions. And this a one, lot and it of was, teams. It was, the, it was the draft that teams went. Okay. You know what this I want to say. It was, a, it was the Wild West draft. Yeah, I mean, shoot them up. You could do whatever you wanted. There was no rules in that draft, basically. And, and there were teams where it was like, you get $250,000. You get $250,000. The, the Pirates spent $13 million on two players, Cole and Josh Bell. And the Nationals spent a ton of money in these drafts. Uh, the, the Royals were handing out, like, if you were a promising college pitcher, oh, high yeah. school pitcher who was going to college, they wanted to sign you. And even if you didn't want... A pitcher in that draft, you could have taken Anthony Rendon, was in the mix to go second overall last the year draft, started drafted. They had the short Francisco stuff. Lindor. There's a, so there's George Springer on the, uh, again, and these are the guys at the top. These are not guys who you would say, again, Sonny Gray, by the way, was in that draft as well. Right, Joe Ross was in that draft. There's a lot of good big league pitching in that draft. And they took just about the only pitcher in this draft class, in the first round, other than like Tyler Anderson. No, no there are some pictures. Jed Bradley. Je- Jed Reed. Bradley hasn't worked out. Okay, you, I missed those two lefties right in the middle. Thank you. But at the top, 
Dylan Bundy, I know he's not anything right now, but he got to the big leagues in one year. But, but also, with Dylan Bundy, again, I would say with that, that, again, that's much like you take Dustin Ackley, it doesn't work out. You need to figure out what went wrong, but you can't say you that can't be faulted we went, everyone else zigged, we zagged, and we thought we were smarter than everyone else, and we weren't. No, that's a, everyone thinks that this is, when Dustin Ackley was picked, everyone went, well, I absolutely understand that. And when Dustin, when, when, when Danny Hudson went number two overall, we were stunned. I think Danny Hudson was stunned. The industry was surprised. Not that he wasn't good. He was highly regarded. But in that draft, with all that pitching, he was not seen as the number two overall guy. And there just were a couple of other misses like that in the draft. And the last couple of years, J.J., uh, all, Alex Jackson's I mean, again, off to I can't a very explain. bad start. Alex Jackson, again, Alex Jackson does yeah. fit in the Dustin Ackley mold. He does. You're right. In that, and he's so early in his career that you, you do hope that it'll it'll get, you know, that this is a, a blip, not a uh, long-term trend. Right. But it is shocking that Alex Jackson was as bad as he was in the Midwest League because if you are talking about designing the high school position player who should be able to go in his Correct. first full year to the Midwest League and handle it, Alex Jackson, who played in a as good a level of competition as you're going to face yeah. in high school and played in so many showcases for so many years. Two-time Under Armour All-American. No, he should have been. No, this is not a guy who goes, they're throwing 95. What do I do? This is a guy who's seen 95 for years. He's seen 90-plus all the time. Right. And this year is just quite simply a very disappointing year. DJ Peterson, who they took in the first round the year before that, has had just a, a downright bad he's, year. He, he's even he's, he's come along a little in the second half, but just not, these are guys who were drafted for their bat and to be quick movers, and, and neither has done it. Sec, you go second round, you go Austin Wilson, Garrett Morgan, and that's we, we, we just should not talk about that. It's no, not, it's better left time. unsaid. Um, the point is, like, you know, Holtz was number four on the BA draft board that year in 2011. I will be ha- I'm happy to report that one and two were uh, Garrett Cole at uh, three, Dylan Bundy at two, Anthony Rendon at one. Jim Callis. Jim Callis always loved Anthony Rendon, and uh, all of us did cover the college yeah. preview issue that year. But um, that that looks good in retrospect. But just that they had taken uh, Daniel Norris at number sixteen on that list, also. Yeah, those are always fun to look at. Hey, Sonny Gray was twelve. Yeah. You know, Sonny Gray's an ace within their division. So those those some of those misses. I think the other thing that really stands out to me, JJ, about the original question I asked you, is that specifically Seattle. Very few cities, other than uh, the Silicon Valley and San, and San Francisco area in California, are more associated with 21st century tech boom. Mm-hmm. The last two decades, it could be called the Seattle. Seattle. Amazon.com. So, I mean, you know, right? I mean, Microsoft, Amazon. These are two of the most successful companies in America in the last 25 years. So I always think of Seattle as a technological, a high tech city, and yet. So a city that is ahead of the game. Even musically, they were ahead of the game for a while. But then you have Bill Bavese and Jack Zarensic as your last two general managers. They've really been behind the curve in terms of the direction baseball has gone in. And in contrast, you have the Cardinals. As traditional as any organization, as much history as any organization outside the Yankees. And yet, they went from Walt Jockety... Uh, you know, traditional, the, traditional that's, that's GM traditional to John Mosellock, and it was a little acrimonious. And the whole reason they did it was they decided 
you know, this scouting and farm director, Jeff Luna, and this data, the way that he's doing things, this is helping our major, our entire organization. And there was friction there, but if we need to go in along, that direction. If they can't get along, then we're going to go. When they didn't get along, ownership chose Luno and that way with John Mosellock, who wasn't like Luno's puppet or anything. John was in charge, but John married the two sides together John, in a way that Walt was, Jockey was, couldn't quite do. He was chosen do. for that job because he was a guy who had demonstrated. And this right. is the new wave. If you said, that's it. I was talking to a scout today and he said, so what is it that teams are really looking for in a GM now? And the way I try to sum it up is, is I believe that most teams now, it is not your evaluation skills. I agree. It is not what it is. Is This is true of general manager or scouting director. Right. Both. Scouting director also. And we'll get into that more. But yeah. it is what they're looking for. Much more than when you go to a game being able to see a guy and project and all that. They're looking for that person at the top who can take a massive amount of data, a massive amount of reports, a massive amount of information. Mm -hmm. Work in a way with communication skills that allows different parts of the organization who may have sometimes diametrically opposed viewpoints. Right. Get them all together and fuse those in a way that you can then have a cohesive direction for the team. And it's not compromising. It's cohesiveness. So you can't make these two sides that might not agree on a player compromise Sometimes you have to pick one and you got to pick the other, what? but they have to be respected. They have to feel respected and listened to. And I think the Cardinals really are the model organization. I, in I'd baseball, say I give, I give two. I'll give the Cardinals as far as they're the model organization as far as that, in that they, because they put it all together. Because again, a key part of this is, is well, a lot of times you hear about stats and scouts and all that and how everyone's getting ready. Third key part of that, well, there's four real key, key components, and this is not even getting into the business side. Let's just right. stay on the baseball side. Right. Because the GM needs to have some, you know, that's not your job, but you, you have to be, be... You can't be tone deaf to it. Right. You can't ignore it. Right. But let's just take that out of it. Let's just talk about the baseball side. There's really four main components because there's the analytics, mm -hmm. there's the scouting, but then there's also the player development, which, yep. again, we have seen even going back to old school, if player development and scouting aren't on the same page... Chaos happens. Like when you hear about the team, the, the guy who's drafted at one position. Oh, yeah, we like this guy. We think he can play this position. Then he goes out into pro ball, and he always is he's stuck out in the outfield, and he doesn't even get a chance at the better, quote-unquote, the higher on the uh, position on, on the scale, defensive position, and it's like, I don't even want to talk about that. That happens every year, even to good organizations, right. it happens. And then you go a step further. Okay, so the fourth component is, is then at the major league level, because the major league level is a silo in many mm -hmm. ways, and you see – that the organizations that do it best, that major league or that look, I mean, I think the Pirates to me are the ones who do this so well. The Pirates, starting with the front office, starting with Neil Huntington, they have figured out a way that their major league coaching staff, their manager of their coaching staff, there you see that fusion of information. That's right. They are doing. They do an excellent job of saying this is not. We're bringing this guy in and just ignore him. The Angels are the opposite end of the spectrum on this. <laughs> I don't know how you read my. We've been working together signal, a long time. But you read my little crazy hand signal. I was like, yeah, I couldn't wait to say that. But yes, the opposite of what you just heard, like what Jerry Depoto was rumored to have done, to say, here's all this information. Your manager's ignoring it, but I'm going to give it to so and so, and you get there, and Albert Pujols saying, no, we shouldn't do it that way. You know, that would never happen with Clint Hurdle and uh, 
Yeah, Neil Huntington. And they're all on the Fox, same page I mean, in Pittsburgh. They, I mean, the analytics guys are welcomed into. They travel. They right. do things. They're not considered outsiders. They're part of the same organization. That's the right word. Which, which really, again, but you have to. So the GM, though, one of their key jobs is to be able to take all these different factions in some ways. Yeah. And everyone's working towards the same goal. And again, there's different ways you can do that because you can do that in a call it a traditional off, you know, front office where it's very scouting heavy but you're still using the analytics but it's in a scouting bent. Or you can do it in a very analytics heavy right. but you know what? We take the scouting and fuse it with that. But if you have that breakdown where you don't have everyone working on the same page, it's really hard to have success as a front office that way. You don't have a cohesive team in a lot of ways. I think Boston's a perfect example of that, JJ. I, I, where... I was going to say, I think if you look at Boston, the difference between how it worked, because I do think, if we talked about the Cardinals are the model. If you're picking the GM who's the model, I know he's not. that's not his title now, right? but Theo Epstein has done this very, very well at two different... No doubt. You know, in two different cities. But the problem that we had, you know, if we go to the, the Ben Sherrington firing, I'll kick this to you, but it does seem like that what happened is is that there ended up being a disconnect in that there at some point along the way it, it feels like that the analytics and the, the fusion was not there as much as it needed to be. I think that's exactly what happened in Boston under Ben Sherrington. And it's amazing because he was part of the uh, and he played at the college level, but there was this analytics part that bent that he brought to it. But he was the farm director mm-hmm. for a long time there before he became the general manager. And to see him, kind of, and, and to hear everything that, and to read everything written about it, uh, it almost it almost feels like they, they went very analytics heavy, almost in reaction to the troubled contracts that he had to jettison in 2012. But like, you know, I think the analytics and the scouting side both loved Adrian Gonzalez. I think the the Carl Crawford signing that was not an analytics signing. That was a that free agency move was made from the, the scouts love. Right. They went one way and then it didn't work out. Right. And, and the same thing with the John Lackey signing, which didn't work out mm-hmm. that that first year. The scouts loved that. So the next year he's like, well, the, I think it was a little overreaction. And and it, the thing about this is that didn't go a step further. It did work in some ways briefly. Right. In 2013, for reasons I think the Red Sox are still trying to figure out, some of those move the move the same kind of things that didn't work in but, 2014 they all all those players worked you know in 2013 the I will say though the difference in 2013 and 2014 is, is the 2013 moves that worked were all with I can't think of an exception lower cost moves yeah there were shorter term moves I mean like Mike Napoli short, uh, Shane Victorino Johnny Guns all those there were a lot of money but they were short term moves as opposed to Crawford uh, and Adrian Gonzalez or go giant step, or go step now to this year and as opposed to Panda and, and Hanley Ramirez and that's the thing there's a, there's not a lot of continuity in the kind of moves the Red Sox made over those years I guess the continuity is they spent a lot of money but the out the, the length of contracts um, for a guy who won a World Series and pulled off this pretty epically historical trade with jettisoning jettisoning Beckett Gonzalez and Crawford to the Dodgers like he did it's surprising that, and when you look at that, that Ben Charrington didn't last longer. Uh, but but I think that that disconnect and the fact that he wasn't able to fuse those scouting and uh, analytic sides together effectively is the reason that he's not there. And then for again, but the, Boston, but the other thing with that is that in Boston, you're you are going to have Jackson Renzi got seven years, right? Winning a title in Boston now, which again we've right. how far we've come. 
10 years ago, this is winning true. a title gives you... Well, actually, in Theo's case, though, it didn't give you a lifetime contract, but, you know, because he faced some... Yeah. Oh, just, no doubt. But, and he had already quit once before. Right. But it did give you... you know, Like, now, winning a title surrounded by three last-place finishes is I not enough. I do think if he wins in Chicago, and I'm almost about... I'm, I was very tempted to say win. They win in Chicago. But if they win in Chicago... I don't think he'll ever be let go. <laughs> and if he doesn't want I'll to. I'll put it this way. If, you, uh, if he wins I, in Chicago, he should just about, go into politics. If we talk about Dave Dombrowski, like Dave Dombrowski is one of the biggest free agents on the market when the Tigers let him go. If Theo ever hit the free agent market, if he wins in Chicago, that's bigger. You know, there's. All, I was talking about this with Teddy Cahill earlier today about the writing that's been done over the last year or so about how big league executives are underpaid. And Teddy was talking about an advocate for that side. I, I don't know enough about it, frankly. I haven't really looked into it to see whether it's underpaid or under. Certainly, seems to be a consensus that front office guys are underpaid. Theo would not be the guy who'd be underpaid if he were a free agent. That bidding would be higher than it would be probably for any player in baseball right now. Maybe I'm not. Maybe not higher. Because again, because the problem is, is that it's still harder to find the player who's right. That special. I mean, that would be so much breaking the record. I but mean, if he ended the Cubs. Uh, oh, I, I know he would be, and the Red Sox and I, he's, I, I and he's say, young. This way. He There's still get, projection there, Jason. Say, but if you said that he could be the first ten million dollar guy or something like that, absolutely. But to to top play, million. you know. But I think somebody's probably making ten million. Some executive probably is. When you're a part owner of the club, like Billy Bean is. Well, yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing is that I don't. No one's making There's ten equity. million as far as contract. I follow, but you. there is equity. You know, yeah, okay. Maybe the Rays just would say, you just hit your <laughs> Exactly. Here's the franchise. Rand We're out. He goes, oh, I, you know, this sounds... You know, That's it. It's That's going, it. Back, going back really old school when the GM was the owner of the team. Well, or or, or to Charlie Fidley, or to, I guess in football, to Jerry Jones. Are yeah. there other NFL teams other than Jerry Jones that are I mean, like no, that? No, I mean, really before that, it was like uh, Mike... I mean, it was uh, Paul Brown and uh, George Hallis. I mean, that, you got to go back that far, pretty much. I didn't realize that uh, that Jerry Jones was that rare. I guess I thought, I thought there were more egomaniacs well, in the NFL uh, well, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry stands alone. Well, we've mentioned a couple of these front office changes, JJ. You touched on Detroit. That took people by surprise when Dave Dombrowski left. It does seem like he set that franchise up for a, re- a quicker rebuild. I would just say, like, when he was sent the boot in the B.A. parlance, you also had Miguel Cabrera on the DL at that time, and people were like, oh, man, what if he's in the decline? And Justin Verlander's it, contract looked like a nightmare. Exactly. Just a month later, they had a lot of prospects that they really needed mm-hmm. at the deadline. Verlander just misses a no-hitter the other day. Cabrera's like hitting 500 since he came off the DL. Things suddenly look a little bit rosier there. And well, not, not only did Verlander throw almost a no-hitter, but Verlander's been... Justin Verlander. That's it. The velocity is back. When he's hitting 80, 96 in the eighth inning, he's not in oh, danger. I remember that. He's not in danger of turning into his former Team USA teammate, Jared Weaver. I, saw you, I knew you were going you there. You knew I was going there as well. Um, so Detroit's rebuild looks like it shouldn't take as much time. Seattle's, go back to that, whoever the general manager is, JJ, well, that's a tougher one because you can't tear down when you have Felix and Cano to these long-term deals. Not only Felix and Cano, but Felix Cano and Cruz, who and are Seager. in the peak. I mean, Seager's a $100 million contract, forgot. Yeah, I mean, you've got four guys who are your peak guys, and they're at their peak right now. So, if you tear down, well, then you're, well, I mean, what are you tearing down for? You're, you're not going to have a better pitcher come up than you've got in Felix right now. I mean, you've got your ace. You've got, you, you got Nelson Cruz. No one's having, I mean, I know he's not in the MVP race, but 
He's having one of the three best seasons in the American League this year. Yeah, he's having like a. I mean, it's 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 a fantastic it's year. It is. If they were, but, if it was on last year's okay. Mariners team, where they were a third place team but had like eighty seven wins, he would get a lot of MVP. Let, let me MVP go in votes. a different direction with this. How much do you think Seattle is hurt by their ballpark? The and in some ways, the same way that Colorado is hurt by theirs. Huh. I, don't, I guess I wouldn't think I would put it in the same it's not category. It's not the same level of Because they were certainly able to get Cano. They were able to get a big free agent right. hitter. They but had to overpay is, for it. But. but it is a ballpark that is an extreme ballpark. If you go to the theory of the extreme ballparks on either end make it tougher to win. Tougher to win, then yes. The, the, the thing is, they won 116 games there. No, I know. I, I guess I, I don't. I guess I would say I don't ascribe to the theory to that theory. I don't. I don't put it in the same category as cores, just because I would say that their lack of success has been more due to factors they can control than factors they can't. I, I just don't believe that you're going to win when you trade Sinshu Chu for Ben Broussard and Eduardo Perez for, I mean, Adribal Cabrera for Eduardo Perez. You just can't do that. And when you are in an epic draft like 2011 and you and you get Danny Hudson and those kind of things, I, I would say it's more of the the things they could control that has been their problem and their demise than the things they can't control. So to me, that that's not a bad job. I would imagine that you can win there, but it doesn't but they're not set up for They're in a very awkward spot right now. I will say with Detroit, though, when you say they're set up... Well, I would say they're set up. They just look better now than no, a month I'll, ago. But I, they do. They look better a month now than a month ago. Who would you, think, which job would you rather have? I now, think that is a more Detroit. difficult job, though, because... There, I mean, for one, the good news is, is you have an owner who is very willing to spend. That's that. That is a huge difference. Is the ownership of the two franchises. However, you, if I'm choosing as a GM, I have one that demonstrated that I can go seven years, <laughs> and they'll give me a chance. Good point. I have another where we were one of the favorites to win the World Series last year, had a very good year, and less than a full season later, I'm gone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, to me, the problem you have in Detroit is is that you are not going to have a soft landing there. Correct. It is going to, when the cliff hits, you're going to hit it. It's going to be a long fall because what's going to happen in Detroit, unless something changes, is, is there is not, okay, you know what, we're looking for 2018. Right. It's going to be, no, we're looking for 16. Well, what does that make mean you're going to have to do? You're going to have to make moves, which understandably, you've got Miguel Cabrera. Right. You've got... You know, you, Verlander. You, you got Verlander. You got you've got pieces where you say, okay, we're trying to win now. But the problem with that is, is that Miguel Cabrera is going to have a nice, steady, slow decline because he's one of the all-time greats. The all-time greats usually don't fall off a cliff, right? Like the guys, you know, you expect him to go further, longer than you would your solid say, good player. Say Alan Craig, right? Who falls? Who <laughs> fell off a cliff? That's right. But but that being said. You never are going to have that point where you can go to the ownership and go, okay, look, I know Miguel Cabrera is still an excellent player. I know he is. But if we can get him to agree to a deal, I think we're better off trading him now. And, yes, we're going to take a hit this year that will make us really much better two to three years down the road. That's not happening there. Right. And so instead, and with all that, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to say – is the next? Do you think the 2016 or 17 team could be better than the 2014 Tigers? I don't. No, no. I think it'd be very, very difficult. I don't. Uh, and if that's the case, 
I mean, that's again, that's the job where the expectations are very high. You're basically looking for like Victor Martinez and the two players we mentioned before, Cabrera and, and Verlander, to at least have major bounce back seasons for JD Martinez to keep doing what he's doing. And then, you know, it's a pitching staff that used to be the strength of the organization. But Annabelle Sanchez needs to bounce back. You need Daniel Norris to really come through. It's a small margin. I agree. If you want it's the job I want, though, it's already been taken. But, you know, hand me that Red Sox job. I know the expectations are high. but Well, that's president can, of baseball operations that's taken. Right, but he's but still taking applications for GM. That's true. But you can go so many directions there. We know with the president there, who, by the way, is going to make those calls, whether he's yes. called president or not. Yes. But you do know there, though, that you can go, if you want to say we're all in for 16, which... I'm kind of guessing that's what you need to do in yes. Boston. I think in Boston, you're all in for fill-in-the-blank year for every year. Right. Well, that being the case, and again, I don't think this was necessarily a bad thing on Ben Sherrington's part, but Ben Sherrington was, always was trying to look now and in the future. Right. Next year, I think they're going to look now. Uh, well, <laughs> if you're Dave Dombrowski, 2021 is not something you're... That's one of the intriguing things that's been written, and I think bears discussing because you saw the Greenville Drive team. Uh But the Red Sox do have, I think it's going to be easy to make them our number one farm system ranking when we do the handbook in December, when we finish the handbook in December. Um, So he's got this tremendous farm system. And, and and young talent at the big league level too. Correct. This is this is the he's got pieces to work with, not just financial wherewithal to work with. He's had that, but now he has financial wherewithal and a farm system that is deep and talented. And even if their scouts haven't been listened to as much in that organization, they've still done great work because internationally and domestic, Boston's put some real talent also together. Say, being willing to spend money, which they've been never hurts. Work. There's no doubt. But on the but on the talent procurement side now, that's harder. That is, you can't leverage that as much. Right. Certainly, you they found the way the to do it. Yeah. Exactly. But Don't other cut. than that, like the Devers and but the Anderson Espinosa's. Devers, right, exactly. Um, uh, Guerra, the shortstop. Javier Guerra. Javier Guerra. Manuel Margot. Those Andrew Benintendi's just, you You pick when you pick, and you're there right. and you take them. That's right. And, uh, hey, two years ago they picked seventh overall, and Trey Ball's coming on very slowly. Mm-hmm. This year they went hitter, and early returns are very positive. So, it's a great farm system. What will he do with that talent? And JJ, you just saw Greenville, and you were summarily impressed. Yes, yes. I mean, that was as I wrote last week. It's the best prospect team in the minors right now. I really do think. I don't think. Is it Jacksonville two thousand five ish? Okay. Not that because really, what you're talking about is is when now that Kopech's not there, and Kopech's a solid pitching prospect, but he's not like one of the top five pitching prospects in the game or anything like that. Right. So when you see Greenville right now, depending on how the lineup's set up that night, it's really something where, okay, they come up to bat, and then Moncada leads off, leads off and then you could, so you're going to have Moncada, you're going to have Devers, you're going to have Chavis, who's a solid prospect, but not in that same group. You're going to have Benintendi, and you're going to have Javier Guerra. So it's really a five-guy, I and mean, that's, that's excellent. That's five really good guys. That's five really good guys, but it's not that same, it's not... And really, to be honest, it's not what we've seen at its absolute best. Like, if you compared that to Chattanooga at the start of the year... Chattanooga is going to be right in the running for minor league team of the year, no doubt. When you had... Buxton, Sano, Kepler. I mean, that's, yeah, that's... And, and Berrios and, and Adam Brett Walker. That was... And, and uh, Polanco, Jorge Polanco. Right. That was better. That start of the season is better than what the Greenville Drive are now. 
2005 uh, Jacksonville Suns, that is uh, my pick for the best prospect team that, since I've been here, uh, included, and, the, and all of these guys didn't all work out, the big leaguers, Tony Abreu, Chad Billingsley, Jonathan Broxton, Joel Guzman, Joel Hanrahan, Eric Hall, Edwin Jackson, Hong Chi Kuo, Andy LaRoche, James Loney, Russell Martin, Russ Mitchell, Beltran Perez, Justin Ruggiano, Eric Stoltz, Derek Thompson, Delwin Young. That's a lot of big leaguers. Yeah, that's double A. Russ Martin is like the only like I will star say, level that's player. Not, I was going to say we this Chattanooga team this year is going to be better than because it didn't include Matt Kemp. Matt Kemp was a half right. step behind them. But if that team, I is agree. Not, that Chattanooga team is going to be better than that. I mean, Sano, <laughs> and Buxton, and then again you throw in a Kepler, you throw in a Barrios, you throw in a Polanco. You throw. I mean, that's. Yeah. I agree. No, I agree. But uh, but no, that Greenville team though. You look at that. We look at. We we can't gush enough about Anderson Espinosa, who's yes. only in the GCL. He's only seventeen. But as we said, I wrote in a chat today. If you said, okay, line up the ten most valuable trade chips in the minors right now, who'd you put one? Urias. Well, the Urias. I'd say Giolito. I know he's I know he's older, but with a pitcher who you know. Yeah, I'll just take lefty. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think both of those are, you know. I think Urias is so rare. I think I'd go Julio Urias. I think I, I think I would rank Giolito above him for ranking pitching prospects. But, but Uri, Urias is just like, he's just like that uh, that albino humpback breaching off the He's just so rare. No, I don't he think is. We, uh, we'll see someone else like Giolito. We may not see Urias but, again. But Espinoza, it fits in that discussion because yes. even as young as he is, the reality is, is that with a pitcher, when you're not projecting, you're not with him. You're not looking at him and saying, "Correct." When he gets to, no, you're saying, "You could pick him up." You're not going to do it with a 17 year old, but stuff wise, feel wise, if you picked him up right now and put him in high A, I would be just. I think it'd be just as likely that he would dominate a start as you get. You know, as I thought you were going to say if you picked him up and put him in the Red Sox bullpen right now, he would hold his own. No, I would say one or two possible. innings, yeah, use the say, right way, go out, throw, throw, hard. but. You if wouldn't you were, do that to a guy, but yeah. But if he were a Rule 5 draft pick, if they had to protect him and you wanted to Rule 5 him for 2016 to you get into another J.J. Bailiwick, yes. you, you, you could. he would be like... You use him, yes. Just the way that Johan Santana, hey, one year, we used him for uh, 60 to 100 innings, whatever he pitched for the Twins, and the next year we unleashed his fury upon the land. Right. That's Anderson I, Espinosa. The, the thing to me with Espinosa is Espinosa will probably go to Greenville next year as a just-turned-18-year-old. Right. I expect he'll probably be too good for that level. I, I agree from based on everything we've heard about him. And they, the, the only thing, like the biggest thing you have to worry about, it feels like for the Red Sox, besides the fact that he's a pitcher, and could you know, <laughs> and he just could blow could they, up. I mean, Dylan Bundy. When we were talking about Dylan Bundy, when that uh, after right. eleven draft, we would say if you send him, we expect him to go to low A. It's really and like, I expect that he will be too good for that. Exactly. Level. It's like there's Spinal Tap drummer, and then just above that is pitcher, pitching yes. prospect. You know. Um, but that's why maybe he wouldn't be one of the top ten. But I will tell you this. If someone said, hey, okay, who do we want from the Red Sox? I think he's at the top of the list. I mean, ver- him versus Yon Moncada is a really interesting discussion of which prospect you'd rather have. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> I really don't know who uh, whom I would it's rather have. It's going to be a very fun top ten because, again, and I, I mean, I'm a – 
I'm an Andrew Benatendi believer. I mean, I, I very much am. But There's no reason he's given us yet to not believe in him, aside from the fact that he looks like a bat boy. But that hasn't stopped Trey Turner. So... Uh, making and Trey Turner looks star. more like a bat boy than Andrew Benjamin. Facially, yeah. certainly. Trey, Trey Turner, I mean, I, I do expect it someday, you know, one of the best guys in baseball, but I do expect someday we're going to read a story in, like, the Washington Post, like, Turner had trouble getting into the clubhouse yeah, today. It's you gotta know, yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah, He looked too young. Yeah, getting his first start tonight in Washington at second base, I'm excited about that. Um, JJ, the other organizations that are making these big changes we wanted to discuss were Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Philadelphia, Jerry Krasnick had a really nice article on ESPN the other day, obviously a longtime BA correspondent, about how a lot of people see the Phillies as a gold mine. And that finally, belatedly, Ruben Amaro made some nice deals. They actually got prospects for Chase Utley, which was really surprising. They've got a gold mine television contract, fan base that awoke and you know, for five, six, seven years was one of the best fan bases in baseball. And if you give back to winning, you know they'll respond. You a ballpark that has all the revenue that you want from it. Absolutely. Um, which job would you rather have there, Philadelphia or Milwaukee? Something like Milwaukee, not just that it's a small market, but what a difficult division. Go uh, ahead and go head to head with the Cubs, Pirates, but especially the Cubs and Cardinals. Forget give, give it. Me, give me Philadelphia because... Ten so, times out of ten. Right. I mean, the reality is, is that I, I think the Brewers' farm system is vastly improved over what it's been. Those are both but, but top ten farm systems. On a curve, but we're partly grading on a curve because yeah. the Brewers' farm system has been so bad that it stands out when you go, wow, this is this is pretty good now. But these are both top ten farm systems for me. Mm-hmm. I think the, the Brewer system's a little bit ahead. Although if I had to take one player out of either one, I would take J.P. Crawford. I'd take J.P. Crawford. And when you go that full top ten, I mean, I think there's more top hundred guys... In the Phillies. Hmm. Maybe I have to go back and look at it. I, I mean, do. Nick Williams, the top 100 guy. Yeah. You know, Jorge Alfaro. To has be been a, a top 100 he's guy. He's been a top 100 guy. I think he's still fringe. You know, you want to see in an ideal world, he's back for the Arizona Fall League. And you go, hey, he's looking, he's moving fine and all that. But Jorge Alfaro, Jake Thompson. Yeah. You know, um, Cornelius Randolph. Cornelius Randolph is off to a very intriguing start. I mean, if he winds up being the purest hitter out of this draft class, it would not surprise me. Absolutely. And you compare that to the Brewers. Orlando Arcia. Mm-hmm. Um, or am I getting the yeah, – it is yeah. Orlando. I yeah. get my Arcias mixed yeah, up. I, I, I get them mixed up. I mean, I, I don't remember who I had next on that on that redone Brewers top. Tyrone top Taylor? Team. No, he wasn't okay. two. It was somebody else. Well, they tripped this year. Their first pick was um, Trent Clark, right? Yeah, Trent Clark was up there. But Trent Clark is a to me like Trent Clark and Cornelius Randolph both fit in the same range, you know of. Yeah, they're they're similar. Randolph's a better pure bat. Clark is, does a lot more things. I would agree that more top one hundred guys off the top of my head, I would say Phillies have more sure things. Definitely top fifty, top seventy five, top guys type guys, and that's after graduating Michael well, Franco. Way, you have to have Phillips, by the way. Phillips was number two. Fred Phillips was number yeah. two. That's who it was. And then you're also mixing in, uh, you, the Phillies are going to lose Aaron Nola. Right. So, but, I mean... The, but, those, you, but if you're a GM, you're not losing him. He's, right. I'm just saying for... A, yeah. For, yeah. But absolutely. That's but a good I, point. I think, but that made me... So, I'm like, you know, the, I, I do think the Phillies have finally... And the, the Phillies also have had some positives at the big league level as far as young guys. They've actually... What they found is this. You know what? The crazy thing about this is, is playing the young guys doesn't necessarily hurt us compared to playing the 
take your pick on the aging 35 year old veteran of a police. That's that is one of the more that was one of the weirdest things uh, I saw on the web the last week or two. Like I, the only the only old veteran guys that are worth playing are the really good makeup guys, and so that's Jeff Francoeur. <laughs> And they were getting criticized in some quarters for playing Jeff Francorn. That's the only guy they, that makes sense there. JJ, they also had, uh, and this goes back to your SBA, they also had a, a fine um, Rule 5 pickup this year. So it's, a, it's amazing how the Phillies, I, I don't know how else to say it, for several years, it just said that they could do nothing right. They did a lot of things yes. wrong. But this year, it feels like most of the things they've done, they big picture-wise, have been the right things. They finally accepted that. We're not winning. and So they don't have a new general manager yet or even a need for a new general manager yet. They have a GM right now, and Ruben Amaro, it feels like it's a fait accompli that the new club president, Andy McPhail, will let him go at the end of the year and find a replacement. But I guess it sounds like now it's not 100% of a sure thing. I don't know what you're feeling on Has Ruben Amaro done enough where if you were Andy McPhail that he'd save his job? Or would you still I'd make still a I still want to know what I can get. I really would. I'd want to know what's out there, you know, and because and, I think there are a lot of really good candidates out there, too. That takes me back, though. This is where I wanted to go, before, make sure we got in before we wrap okay. up. I think we both talked to some scouts today, you know, because Randy Flores was named the uh, Cardinal Scouting Director, yes. which he's the Cardinals. He fits every bit the Cardinals' MO when they hire a scouting director in that, you know, He's a little different in that he's a former big league player. Right. Not a, not a, there, I don't believe there's anything in his job resume that says the word scout next to it. Now, he was a college he, assistant coach, so he probably recruited right. a little bit. He, had, he has done some evaluation at some point, probably of some sort. But it's very much, and again, this is the new model. The new model for many teams is that the scouting director is not necessarily, the old model for scouting director, and let's start, we were talking about amateur scouting director. Yeah. Basically, we're talking about the person, to, to simplify to make sure that we're, everyone understands where we're going, we're talking about the person who their job is to run the draft. Now, That's right. When you get to the first round pick, are they making that pick all on their own with no input from the GM and all? No, absolutely not. You always days. love those stories where they're like, on the morning of the draft, they're headed in one direction, and then the general manager or the owner pokes their head and says, hey, you're really good at drafting this kind of player, or, hey, we would really like a college pitcher, or, hey, please right. don't draft the player those represented by this player. Those well. Those never. It's, those are those. That, that's a big obstacle that's thrown in when a sky. When we talk about the fusion, life. that is confusion. That's right. Fusion, that's very well said. But your sky director, your job is to line up that board, mm-hmm. and that the way. How do you line up that board? You hire your cross checkers. You have your special assignment guys. You help guy. determine who sees what players when they see them, and then you have to collate all that information yeah. to line up that draft board, and which has all those other concerns and assignability organizational uh, needs, desires, uh, direction an organization wants to go in, all those things to line up that, all that information that goes in that board. So it's, I think it's always been an information job, but the amount of information has gone from a thimble to, like, a, you know, Ni- Niagara Falls. Yeah, it's, we've worked together too. Yes, we have. But, <laughs> um, but no, the thing that jumps out with it is, is the used to be the career track was this you right. played at least the college level right ideally you were at least a minor leaguer maybe you made it to the big leagues usually not a long time big leaguer but right. usually a minor league career long enough that someone caught you caught the eye of someone a scout or a coach who took you under the wing and said you know what 
we, we think you should have a job in the game once your playing career is over. Right. Then you went to become an area scout, you know, or maybe you even started out as a bird dog somewhere, but you were, you know, or a coach somewhere, and yeah. then you became an area scout. Yeah. And as an area scout, you learned really kind of the basics of evaluating and how to set up a region, line up your own board as far as your area. That's right. Write good reports, evaluate. And then if you did that well, you moved up, you became a cross-checker. And as the cross-checker, your job was to go around the country, see the top guys, help basically line up the big board, you know, help the scouting record line the big board. And if you showed that, man, this guy really is good at, when he sees guys, he sees things, he's a really good evaluator, then you would move up from that, and boom, you became the scouting right. director. Right. That has been blown up now. That, that and it's not Randy Flores. Over the last 10 years, we have seen that become less and less the case of Absolutely. what a scouting director is, what teams are looking for when they hire a scouting director. The guys who, and there was this large influx of college coaches who in the early 1990s, college coaching paid no money anymore. Mm -hmm. All men's sports got cut 10% with their budgets. And a lot of those guys, whether it was like Stan Meek, I think Grady Fuson was involved out. He may have come earlier from college coaching. Joe Jordan. There was just an influx of those kind of people going from college coaching to which, scouting. Which makes sense and then because there's a lot of similarities to those jobs between Absolutely. lining up a recruiting, who you're recruiting, your recruiting scholarship budget, you had limited exactly. resources. There are some similarities between doing that and scouting. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there were a lot of similarities and it made sense. So for a while there, those were, that, that was really like most of where your scouting directors came from. They were guys who or they were play, ex-players who became scouts and worked their way up that way. Or there are players or scouts who've also been college coaches, and then they go into scouting. And again, the, the job is that was the traditional plan. But again, the, as the information has become more sophisticated and so much higher in volume, I do think, in general, JJ, I think you have to be more sophisticated to handle all those different streams of information. And here's the reality. doesn't mean that you can't do it if you were an area scout. I think that today's area scouts do take into account different kinds of data. But maybe the area guy who was an area guy 20 years ago didn't. Not all of them, but some of them. But here's the reality. What it comes down to is, is that if you're the Cardinals, you look at your drafting under, I mean, again, let's go back four scouting directors now. You know, right. You're scouting, you're, you're, you're drafting under Mosellac, under Lunau. You know, Correa, you know, was a very brief, you know, yeah. period of time, you know. But uh, you look at it now, um, I'm skipping one there, aren't I? Uh, Dan Katrovitz was yes, there for three Katrovitz, years. Yeah, for three years. But it's worked very well for them. Absolutely. I mean, and that is not – you look at you, you look at how the uh, the Astros have done it, and it's worked out very well for them. No doubt. I mean, they've had some hits and misses, but overall you can't say that – teams who have gone the non-traditional way of hiring a scouting director have had success. And – What's interesting about that is, is that there's no doubt. Not all of them, but a lot of a lot of those clubs have had a lot of success. And so, what's interesting with that though is, is that I mean, we both talked to area scouts who today who kind of said, "What does this mean for me?" Right. And I understand How, like that. That's my career. If that's my career goal, that career goal looks further away today. When you are a guy who's trying to grind through it, and it's as an area disheartening. Scout. It is, and then you see a guy who played in the big leagues. And was a great college pitcher, good, useful big league relief pitcher, but then does broadcasting for a couple of years. Yeah, did it one year of uh, half a year, I think it was, of coaching at USC as alma mater. 
And then you see him go from that to being a scouting director. But so I understand why it is disheartening for them. I will say for what for the way St. Louis does it, A, I wouldn't want to change a thing with the way I draft. Mm-hmm. It's working for them. And B, Randy checks pretty much every box. Mm-hmm. And he actually probably comes into that organization with more credibility than Jeff Luno did when he came into it, or than most of their guys and, that come into you it. You made the point. The other thing that stands out is, is that if you, are, but you are talking about an organization, though, also, that they do not need a guy to come in. You know what? We need that evaluator who can line up the top of our board. Right. They've got those guys. They need the guy who can listen to those guys, they, add in some things, but really, again, fuse the information. They clearly trust the guys who are doing the evaluating because they hired Correa, Chris Correa to be their scouting director and to run this draft. And Chris's background was math, analytics. He had been brought in by Jeff Luno into their analytics department. He'd done some scouting at the big league level and then seen their own, their right. own guys. And let's be honest. Gone to see who, some... Anyone who does this right, whether their background is, is they got an internship and then they moved into the front office and all that, the smart guys doing that are going. It's not like they're not going out and seeing games. But exactly. It's not, but it's not the same background as a guy who... I've spent 15 years, and I have a in my right. a mental Rolodex in my head and let's of 25,000 guys. And let's face it, the skills that it takes to be an area scout, I think, do train you to be a scouting director. I think it's a temperament thing, but the skills of being an area scout, of organizing your area, lining players up, you're, you're setting up your pref list, but also learning to communicate with... There's a lot of different people you have to communicate with. There's travel ball coaches, parents, players, college coaches, advisors... There's a lot of different kinds of constituencies you're dealing with as an area scout, which is similar to what a scouting director has to do. So I understand the job descriptions are different. Do I think being an area scout trains you to be a scouting director? I do think it does. But I think there are other ways to be a scouting director, and that's what the industry seems to be leading to. So I feel for the area guy who looks at today's news and thinks the ceiling for me as a, in this profession is limited. And I do think in general, JJ, there's going to be more and more of a trend where you see the Brad Weitzels and Craig Bells at Florida, Andy Canizaro at LSU. The money in college baseball is becoming so significant that you're going to see more and more talented scouts see this kind of news and then they have a better chance to have a better life and let's be being honest, college coaches than being if, scouts. If when you say, like, it really comes down to, you know, I talked to one. I, I, you know, I, I talked to an area scout today who made the point. He said, "Look, you know, sorry, you know, he's like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. If you told me that I'm going to go to baseball games and evaluate for the next 40 years, sign me up. That's right. But understandably, there's also a lot of people in the game who look at it and say, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, but I want to advance. And the reality of it is, is that it's not the door is closed, but Whereas 15 years ago, if you were an area scout, you'd say, okay, area scout, pro scout, cross-checker, right. scouting director, or pro scouting director, or whatever. Now you do look at it and go, okay, really, is my aspiration to be a special assistant? Being a, being a, a scout is a very different job now than it was 15 years ago, but also 15 years ago, there were, no, there were very few scouting directors whose background was in analytics. If there was one, I can't tell you off the top of my head. You know, John Mozalock was a scouting director 15 years ago. I would say his background was necessarily analytics, but it wasn't area scouting right. either. Um, and there were lots of pro scouts 
and they were paid pretty well. That was what you. That was, that was one really thing. the aspiration for a lot of people. Like, if exactly. I'm not going to become a director. There were only 30 scouting director jobs at that time. There were 30. There were only 30 of those jobs. There were a lot more pro scouting directors. I mean, pro scouting jobs. Those were more attainable and more realistic job. Uh, something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. You area scouted for 15, 20 years, then you kind of had that soft landing as a pro scout. You know, that's those those jobs are going away, replaced by analytics in a lot of ways. And video. And video. And the marriage of those two, which is what Randy Flores did with On Deck Digital. And then you see scouting directors, that job's... That is just a... There are fewer of those jobs available to people with there, your background. So it's going to be... Gonna be fewer, so I can see the discouragement. There's going to be fewer... I mean, the reality is, is there's going to probably be fewer jobs... Yes. Uh, on the evaluation side, period, just because, again, right, I'm not putting a value judgment right or wrong, but the reality is, is that there is so much more out there now. Nowadays, if you are, uh, again, let's take it back 15, 20 years. 15, 20 years ago, if you wanted to evaluate a guy, you literally had to get on a plane, go <laughs> right. see him. And if you didn't, there was nothing. Put it this way, when a Cuban player comes over now, and, of course, the situation in Cuba is becoming more and more fluid. But when Andy Morales came around in 1999, you didn't have much to go on. And when the Yankees signed him to a $4 million contract or $8 million, whatever it was, it was basically off a workout. Mm -hmm. They didn't have much to go off. When you sign Yohan Moncada now for a lot more money, and it cost them, what, $63 million? Yeah, 60, yeah 63 So, But the Red Sox had so much more information to go off of than they now, used to. Now, Not to mention the older Cuban players, like if Uleski Gurriel got out and became a free agent. Now, if you're talking about, okay, so like let's say they're having, they're setting up, you know, our pre-board, you know, like we're just even getting on the names, you know, right now. Justin, when we're talking about the guys who are going to be the premium yeah, guys. Jason Groom, Jason Riley Groom, Pine. Riley Pine, guys like that. Right now, sitting at any desk in any front office, you can see really good video. We probably have more video of those guys right now than, say, the Pittsburgh Pirates had in 2002 when they were trying to decide, Melvin Upton Jr., or are we going to take Brian Bullington? Mm -hmm. I mean, we probably and have way more. And so what happens with that? Go a step further. Okay, pro scouts, 15 years ago, some of your job was really a stenographer job. You needed to do more than that, but a lot of it was, if we don't have someone go to Peoria and see these guys, we don't even know what they've got if, right. we, don't have a, if we don't have a team in that league. So That's some right. of it was turning in the report and going, this guy's 90-92, this guy's 88-80, this guy's got a really good curveball. Nowadays... With that, you click a button and it's like, where's all our trackman data? We That's have? right. That's you know, right. what's his exit speeds on these guys? Okay, do you say that guy's got power? Well, yeah, he's averaging 95.2 on his, yeah, absolutely, he has bat speed exactly. or something because he's really driving the ball. Those things are all now, again, they're very easy to acquire, but also what's difficult now is, is okay, but everyone has that. Yeah, the quantifiables, it used to be the pro scout and the amateur scout's job were to go gather these measurables mm -hmm. to measure and me and, and gather and the measurable some, information beyond that but that was a big part of the job that was a huge part of the job it wasn't all of it but it was a huge part of the job and now it's, i just feel like the the lion's share of that job is getting to know the player getting to know the makeup as much as possible and that's harder and to also do in the process seeing side. what they're doing differently and saying you know what 
how this they're doing fixed, it, not just what be... they're doing, but how they're doing it and how that can be helped and how that's going to translate. And that's a harder job. So there are fewer of those jobs, I feel, to go and they're around. they're tougher. They're tougher jobs, and there's less chance for advancement. They're, they're fewer jobs, they're tougher, and not only that, but... Very tough may, job. But not only that, but... And again, I can't imagine how frustrating it's to be that you are out there doing this. Living a life that essentially, in many ways, is, is okay... Again, they signed up for it, but during the your season, you are away a lot. You a lot. are alone a lot. All yes. that. And now... You can sometimes, you turn it in, and then someone in the front office who is going home to their house every night. That's right. Goes, ah, you know, we actually, you know, but looking at this data and all this, you know, we, you know, no, I, I disagree. His, his, uh, his walk rate's too low for us even right. to consider in the first five rounds. Right. And again, they may be right even sometimes, but it's not the easiest time in many ways to be a... Uh, an evaluator. In some ways, if you're an area scout, it's like it's never been easier. You can find all the schedules at the drop of a hat uh, or the click of a mouse, I suppose I should say, or the swipe of, uh, a, phone. Of, a, of a phone. You and have two text messages to check on the, you know, whereas exactly. before trying to get the high school coach on hey, the who's phone, pitching? Exactly. you know, to go, are y'all still okay today? Or, you know, he, oh, we got, and now it's a, it's you just have the weather now. app. Exactly. Oh, you have your weather app of whether there's going to be rain yeah. that day or not and whether I should go there or not. And when you are on the road, yeah, you're on the road a lot, but you could take all the movies or all the entertainment you want with you and satellite radio in the car and all these kind of things. And you don't have to know where all the pay phones are on your route. And also, by the way, getting to the game, you know, you type it in your GPS. On your exactly. Phone, you know, all that. Those things are – and oh, yeah, by the way, but and the, also throw in that – and you get to see your guys that you're in your area against top competition because oh, yeah. they're at, you know – you're not just Erico, seeing PG, all these things. That's right. You're not just seeing a guy like the White Sox did with Tim Anderson, the rare exception to this. You're not just seeing him against JUCO competition and evaluating him off how he look, how does his swing look off this 82 mile an hour fastball he was facing. That's why Tim Anderson's success is so interesting because he's almost like a relic mm -hmm. kind of player. But most of the time, it's oh, I saw him have all these swings against Groom last summer, mm -hmm. and we really think that. You know, this guy can hit because I saw him uh, turn on one from Pint last year at Under Armour or any of these kind of things. So, in some ways, it's a lot easier. But in some and all these other ways, it's a lot harder job than it used to be. And I think that's reflected in the fact that, um, well, it's not reflected. One of the ways is how much harder it is to rise up the ranks. Uh, being, an area, being an area scout, JJ, it's uh, two of their biggest career goals, being in a front office or being a pro scout. Those are much harder jobs yeah. to get these days. That's for sure. So, this was a—I didn't expect this to be the direction we went in, but, but I think I'm was, always I mean, pleasantly surprised. That was it, a good one. Again, I think it is—you know—it is worth noting because we hear a lot of people, "Hey, you know, I want to get into the gang." I mean, these are oh, also yeah. some of the things like that you need to be aware of. I mean, hey, the other thing about that is is that for good and bad, nowadays, if you're listening to this podcast, you go, "I want to, I want to scout, I want to," you know, they're. 20 years ago, sorry, buddy, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. No, and nowadays, you go, no, that is actually a realistic goal. Now, does it mean that you're probably going to have to intern as your as a video guy for five years, you know, living in a shoebox and yes, eating it does. ramen? Yes. You're but gonna, and, and if you get lucky, that. you can get from that to become an area scout or a pro scout. And then the bad news is, is that then that's what you're probably going to do for a long time. Doing, doing that in Arizona probably during a fall league. Or in the summer, Arizona League, uh, doing that in scout school. Which, uh, if you did, if you missed it, too late probably. But 
do you think it's very intriguing that uh, the Major League Scouting Bureau doing a basically a uh, consumer's scout school mm-hmm. this fall at basically $900 a pop, and as we were trying to decide whether we were going to send someone to it, filled up. Mm-hmm. So those jobs are in demand. People seeing the game from a scouting and player development point of view is growing, but those jobs are becoming less and less frequent. So uh, good stuff, JJ. I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, I know on Sunday we're going to go see Blake Snell. Next I'm week, ne- oh, I'm going. I, told, I already told the wife I'm going. <laughs> next week, I believe is when we will actually have to pick <laughs> our minor league player of the year. So the next podcast may be the minor league player of the year podcast. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, as usual, if you have questions for us, you can hit us both up on Twitter. He's at JJCoop36. I'm at John Manuel BA. And until the next time, so long, everybody. After the end of a good fight. You deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.